you so much. Beautiful singing today. Now let's turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. Today we find ourselves in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James 4, 13 to 17. If you were into pop culture in the 1980s, Or maybe you enjoy watching old reruns. You're probably aware of the famous TV show called The Facts of Life. Anybody used to watch that? By the time the show ended in 1988, it was the longest running sitcom in history, which implies that it was a very popular American pastime. But I got to confess, I'm not too familiar with the show. And maybe if you're under 35 years old, you might not have a clue about what I'm talking about. So let me briefly explain the basic premise of the show. Briefly. Basically, the storyline goes like this. The show features a group of girls attending a boarding school, experiencing the joys and trials of adolescence under the guiding hand of house mother, Edna Garrett. As the teenage girls benefited from her tutelage, they tackle a vast array of issues throughout their formative years and then later into adulthood. And so the show was appropriately named The Facts of Life, which, in general terms, educate young, inexperienced, gullible, naive young women about the startling realities of living in our fallen world. And now my hunch is that the sitcom was dubbed the most popular and running, longest running sitcom in the 80s was because everyone can relate to the storyline. We all need to learn the facts of life at some time of our life, don't we? We all are confronted head on with the harsh realities of life. We need an older, wiser person in life to guide us, to teach us, to say this is the way you should go. We need somebody to pick us up, put their arm around us, and encourage us when we want to give up. But as Christians, we do not learn the true facts of life from the show, The Facts of Life, do we? Where do we learn the true facts of life? Oh, the scriptures. So that's what we're going to tackle this morning. Today, you are going to learn the facts of life. The fundamental truths that build the life philosophy on earth. So let's read. Genesis, excuse me, I just talked through Genesis, shift gears. James, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. The Word of God reads again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So in this text, there can be found four facts of life which will function as the bedrock of your worldview or your philosophy of life or your outlook on life or your bird's eye view of life itself. I continually meet Christians at all ages who do not have these facts of life. They do not have a biblical worldview. And it's evident by the things they say and the things they do. So let's let the word of God inform us on what the true facts of life are. The first one is verses in verse 13 to the first half of 14. Number one, the first fact of life is your life is uncertain. Look at verse 13. It says, come now you who say. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. James begins this section with a direct address. It's a short and abrupt address to his audience, which again is the Jewish believers, the diaspora. As I've noted along the way, James typically uses, when he transitions to a different subject, he uses an address. Usually, he says, brethren, sometimes beloved brethren, which tells us that he is writing to Christians. But sometimes he changes his mood a little bit in tone, and he goes from being a loving, gentle father to being the disciplinarian father. In chapter 3, he labels the man with dead faith as foolish. If you believe that true faith without works is true faith, then you're a fool. In John chapter, excuse me, James 4, he indicts his spiritual sons and daughters by calling them adulteresses, sinners, and double-minded. And then as we'll see next week in chapter 5, James uses the same address we see in chapter 4, verse 13, to harshly rebuke rich people who are blinded by the things of this world. So the point of this address, come now, you who say, is to carry a forceful admonitory tone. Like a father who needs to rebuke his children for behavior not in keeping with family values. And I emphasize this address for one main purpose. To lovingly admonish you, who are faithful members and attenders of this church, to listen and apply what God has revealed here. In these verses, we uncover some gold here that can be applied equally to everyone, regardless of the color of hair on your head or lack thereof. So please, pay attention, and if you'd like to take notes, I put the points in the PowerPoint for you. Stay with me today through this message as I accurately handle the word of truth for God's glory and for your sanctification. 
After his address, James gives a general quotation of a merchant, which is, of course, fictional, as the language this or that city makes apparently clear. And what James is doing here is he's putting words on the lips of his recipients to bring the underlying expression out in the open, which is their attitude that they are adopting plans void of God's role. So not only does their attitude reveal that they are extremely self-confident in their plans, they are also equally quite sure of the outcome, which is making money. In the time period that James is writing, his audience would have been very familiar with the picture that he is painting here. Because remember, in the mid-first century, the culture was marked by growing commercial activity, especially in Hellenistic cities of Palestine. And Jews especially were active in these ventures, as many had settled in cities throughout the Mediterranean world in pursuit of financial gain. And like greedy businessmen do today, they would devise careful plans to relocate to the place where they thought they could make the most money. But James has a word for those people who think like that. A very stern word. But before we hear what that word is, I want to bring some biblical balance to this discussion so that we don't arrive at an extremely lopsided, faulty interpretation. So quickly, take, take note of these two clarifications. In this text, understand that James is not forbidding Christians from all forms of planning or concern for the future. We are definitely wise to make financial plans for things like retirement. Proverbs 21.20 says that the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. So James is by no means advocating quietism here, which is the false mystical idea of let go and let God. That's not what he's advocating. The second clarification is we should understand that James is not condemning the practice of a financially successful business. Men are responsible to work for their own food, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. And men are responsible to provide for their own family, 1 Timothy 5.8. And it takes money to do that, doesn't it? And in many parts of the world, like Western Washington... It takes plenty of it. So keep in mind here that James is not condemning planning. and He's not condemning financial success. So be careful not to interpret this text by thinking you shouldn't plan or, you sh- or that you should be a socialist. That's not the point. James is rebuking any kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance and one's own ability to determine the course of future events. That's the point he's making. The end result is not up to us. Your future is 100% uncertain. 
Look at verse 14. It says very clearly, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. This is the fact of life. Contrary to some false prophecies and predictions by self-appointed prophets and apostles today, I have to be truthful. No one at any time, anywhere, knows with certainty what will happen tomorrow or the next day or the day after that and so on. Anybody who gives predictions of future events is a liar. Don't believe them. The ensuing uncertainty of all human plans and events is the main point of this verse. Now again, James is not saying we should not plan. We should not throw the baby out with the bathwater per se. Making plans is necessary, but we err greatly when we think and pretend things will always work out the way we planned. How often have you made plans and the outcome was totally different? How many of you thought you'd be sitting right here 20, 15, 10, or even five years ago? Or since many of you, like Jen and I, who have only been here for a couple years, how many of you plan to be sitting right here, right now, listening to an exposition of James 4? So you see, while certain aspects of your life may have panned out the way you visualize, the future of your life is entirely uncertain. Tomorrow you could get a phone call. And here's some tragic news. You could get dressed tomorrow morning and find a lump. You could lose all your material possessions at the drop of a hat, like Job did. So Christians, don't forget... That God does not permit us to know what will happen and when it will happen. We can make our meticulous plans, but always keep in the back of your mind that your desired end result may not be in accordance with God's decreed will. And if you know who God is, then that's good news. To know that your life is bound to the sovereign will of a good and merciful God should help you sleep at night. It should also help you see that the uncertainty of life is also a precious gift. Can you imagine how you would feel if you knew that you were going to die next year? And how? It would dominate your thinking. So the fact of life, it's our life is uncertain. You have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. And we need to live in such a way that we believe that. The second fact of life is this. Your life is brief. First, your life is uncertain. The second fact of life is that your life is brief. Look at the second sentence in verse 14. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now, I think it goes without saying, this is one of the more humbling verses in Scripture. James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls his spiritual children a vapor. 
You're just you're nothing but a vapor. And it translates a very rare word in the Greek, which also can be rendered as smoke. Some translations say mist. But whichever word we choose, the point is clear enough, isn't it? Human life is flimsy and transitory. We're here one minute and gone the next. Illness, accidental death, or the return of Christ could cut our lives short just as quickly as the morning sun dissipates the mist hovering above the ground. Or as a shift in the wind's direction blows away smoke rising from the fire. This is the fact of life. In one sense, this think this thought is sobering to ponder. For those who don't know Christ, it may be a frightening thing to ponder. But for those of us who do know him, this is a reminder that very soon we are going to see the king. And perhaps for those who are more advanced in age and have truly suffered, this truth is a little more comforting than it is for those who are younger, who are hastily going to and fro day to day, totally preoccupied with the next activity on their agenda. For young people, especially children and adolescents, life on here, life, life on earth normally seems much more than a vapor. But the truth is, that's what our life is like. Do you remember when you were in your late teens or early 20s and felt 10 feet tall and bulletproof? Man, I'm sure you remember that, especially. I felt that way. As an infantry soldier, we were trained to think that we were the best. We were trained to be mentally and physically tough. To be the world's best warrior. But now that, I have, that I've had cancer, and now that I deal with chronic back pain, all of a sudden I don't feel 10 feet tall anymore. God has shown me on more than one occasion that I am nothing but a vapor. And that's what you are too. That's the unadulterated truth. You are all a mist, a cloud of smoke, that is here one minute and gone the next. And so what should you do with this fact of life? Wow, Pastor, thanks for that. What an uplifting message today. Well, the point is not for you to walk around like Eeyore, thinking that you're lower than anything you can imagine. James wants us to be humble. Viewing yourself as a vapor should humble you. We're not Captain America. We're not Iron Man. We're not Mr. Universe. Truth is that we're frail, broken humans. Many humans are hopeless. They live in fear every day. this truth should humble us to the point of total dependence on Christ. Because the more humble you are, the more you see your need for Jesus. And the more you see your need for him, the more you love him. You should also view yourself 
this, this truth of viewing yourself as a vapor should compel you to look upward more than downward. What I mean by that is to be eternally and heavenly minded and not mostly earthly minded. Moms especially, you are not here to be a mom. You, you, are not here, you, don't, you don't exist to be a mom. Your kids are not the center of your life. Our children become the center of our life because they're in front of us all the time. We see them. We get so focused on the here and now. But keep in mind that your life is a vapor and so is theirs. We need to train ourselves to think heavenly, train our children to think heavenly. Because our life is brief and we need to be ready. That's another fact of life. The third fact of life, verse 15. Your life is controlled or governed. Your life is governed. Now, this truth, this fact of life may not be as familiar or embraced. You all have thought that your life is brief. You have all thought that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but here's one that really gets on people's nerves. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, see that preposition in the beginning of verse 15? It connects this verse to verse 13. As opposed to saying, I will go to this or that place to do this or that task for this or that purpose, we should say, if the Lord wills. Before I expound on the meaning of that phrase, note how widespread the sentiment is. Peter used it in 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer. For it is better if God wills for you to suffer. Paul used it in Romans 1.10 and 15.32. And of course, we see our Lord Jesus use this sentiment in what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he uses it again in his prayer in Gethsemane prior to his arrest. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. So the phrase, if the Lord wills, is not a new idea coined by James. He's using words common to his theistic culture. Because, again, keep in mind that there were very few agnostics. There were very few atheists in James' day. The overwhelming majority of people recognized the existence of a divine being directing the affairs of human life. Even pagans would say, if the gods will, and even today and Jews believe that their God has a will that's impressed upon mankind. So all this is to say that the phrase by itself is not distinctly Christian. I say this to remind you that different people from different cults and religions say the same things that we read in the Bible, but they meet some totally different. And my submit to you, 
that you mean something different than what James means when you say, if the Lord wills. Here's how you know. When the Bible uses the sentiment, if the Lord wills, here's what you should mean. We mean that our plans are fully dependent on our triune God's willingness to cause our plans to come to fruition without any caveat, any exception, or any limitation in any area of our life. Either God is supremely sovereign or he's not. There's no middle ground. He was sovereign over your salvation, over your birth, and he was sovereign over the left turn you took this morning. We understand that everyone's life is in God's hands. Everyone's. And so then we come to understand that the spiritual realm, which we do not see, determines exactly what transpires in the material realm, which we do see. Proverbs 16.9, the, the mind of a man plans his way, material, but the Lord directs his steps, spiritual. Listen to Proverbs 16.33, a verse that's probably less cited than what I just read. The lot, some translations say dice, the lot is cast into the lap, material. But listen. It's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord, spiritual. Doesn't that blow your mind? Every time a dice is thrown, it's decisions from the Lord. To know that not a millisecond goes by without God being directly involved in every single life action on the planet. Now let me highlight something else in this text that you may not typically that you may typically gloss over. Because when we read passages like James four fifteen and Proverbs sixteen nine, we usually apply it to our short term and long term goal setting. But now I want you to concentrate for a moment on the three little words that you see placed immediately after if the Lord wills. Look at your Bibles. What does it say? If the Lord wills, we will live. Think about that. If the Lord wills, your heart will still be beaten in five minutes. If the Lord wills, you will continue to inhale and exhale. If the Lord wills, you will wake up tomorrow. If the Lord wills, we who believe will be raptured and live in paradise at any moment. What James is revealing here is not only are your earthly plans subject to his bidding, your very existence, this very second, is in his control. If the Lord wills, we will live. The exact time of your death has been fixed by God. And nothing you can do can shorten or lengthen it. You can eat as much organic food as you can buy. You can go to the gym and exercise every day religious, religiously like a fanatic. 
You can take all the herbal supplements and vitamins you can get your mitts on. You can wear a helmet and every piece of protective gear you can find at Walmart. But in the end, it will be to no avail. My friends, if you're the one who's tends to be a little bit more paranoid about stuff, let this ver- verse rebuke you right now. If the Lord wills, you will live. If the Lord wills, you will die. Because your life is in his control. Listen to Job 14.5. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits. Listen, he cannot exceed. Acts 17.31. For he, God the Father, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world of righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then after that comes judgment. So listen, we all have a divine appointment to face God. And there's nothing that we can do, humanly speaking, to postpone it, reschedule it and we're not going to be late so for those of you who struggle with punctuality you can rest because you will not miss your appointment with God you won't be late so make no mistake my brothers and sisters our God is a sovereign God now you know that but what that really means is that he handles and controls every single event that ever happens He has total control over the circumstances and timing of our earthly existence and our departure. And that's what James wants us to be confronted with today. That's a fact of life. Your life is governed. The continuance of life itself is completely contingent upon the will of God. Again, that should be comforting because you know who God is. Finally and fourthly, your life is conflicted. Last fact of life, your life is conflicted. As Christians, you deal with the inner confliction every day, don't you? Like Paul who wrote in Romans 7, you know what is Christ-honoring and what isn't. Yet oftentimes you choose to think or do what isn't. Because, number one, you have a sin nature, and number two, you live in a world that, listen, let's face it, has an evil influence on you. And it was no different in James' day. In fact, I would argue that it was much more difficult in James' day. Because Christianity was brand new. But yet, since we're talking about the diaspora, they knew their theology. Most Americans, they know some theology. They had a conscience like you. They had accountability like you, but they were still conflicted. And this confliction was manifested in a specific way. Look at verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And now quickly, let me just say, boasting in and of itself is not sinful, 
Paul said to the Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's good to boast in the Lord, boast in the gospel. So we learn that there is a righteous boasting and an unrighteous boasting. So that's why James adds the qualifier. He says, you boast in your arrogance. And the type of boasting depicted here is a boasting that arises from misplaced pride in one's own ability to chart the future. And James explicitly says, all such boasting is evil. In other words, it's pure wickedness to brag about personal autonomy and independence from the Lord. But that does not stop men from doing it, does it? As we see here, in fact, even Christians are prone to it. We, too, are subtly led to believe that we've arrived at our current destination because of our own gifts, our own talents, our own education, our own work ethic. I've been tempted to think, wow, I went from being an uneducated, dumb infantry soldier to being a graduate-level trained preacher at a church incarnation. Look what I've done. I didn't get here because of me. My talents, my gifts, my work ethic, my effort, my cleverly, cleverly devised planning did not get me here. What did? Sovereign God who opens doors and shuts doors. The sovereign God who gives life and takes life whenever he wants. The sovereign God who condemns and saves. The sovereign God who blesses and afflicts. Nothing we experience is ultimately brought about by the will of man, but by the will of God. And to think so, to think otherwise, rather, is raw evil. And so James concludes this section in verse 17. He says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Now, if you've ever, if you've been a believer for a while, you've probably heard this verse used at a proof text to form the idea of there being a sin of omission, sins of omission, right? And there's definitely truth to that idea. But if we look at the context carefully, James did not intend this verse to be ripped out of its context and applied to every scenario we can dream up. Even though it is sinful for people not to do something that he commands. I mean, ignorance of the law never got anyone out of jail, right? That's not the main point of this text here. It's not the main point of this verse. What is the right thing that James is referring to in verse 17? Well, he's talking about planning. He's talking about planning without considering the Lord and what his will is and what his rule is in our life. He had just urged his readers to take the Lord into consideration in the doing of life. 
And now, therefore, they have no excuse to leave God out. They're sinning. When you think that you're going to live forever, when you think that you are autonomous, when you think that you got things figured out, you're sinning. The right thing to do is to acknowledge God as sovereign Lord. to fail to do that, James makes it clear it's sin. So the same truth applies to us today. When you make plans, be cognizant of the temptation in your heart that compels you to do life without remembering that your life is uncertain. Your life is brief, it is governed, and it is conflicted. And as you walk out of here and you take to heart these facts of life, I pray you do. They should cause you to be chiefly consumed with eternity. This is why I love the work of preaching. Because I, I have no option to neglect the word of God for very long. That's, why, that's what I do. And so when I'm confronted with these things, you know, I, 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 and before I step into this pulpit, I have to really do some repenting myself first, right? Lest I be the hypocrite. But I pray that, as I was reminded, we need to be chiefly consumed with eternity. And if you are less concerned about this world and most concerned with eternity, suddenly you become refocused on why we're alive. What do we do with this uncertain, brief, governed, conflicted life? If you're a Christian, the answer is simple. You make disciples of Christ. When we forget these facts of life... We stubbornly think that we know what's going to happen. We recklessly think that we're going to live for a long time. We ignorantly think we are captains of our own destiny. And we pridefully think of ourselves as innocent people. Not needing forgiveness and hope and redemption. And then we neglect the Great Commission. Which is a serious problem. But, if you realize that you have no control of your life, but God does. If you realize that your life here on earth is brief, but will be eternal in heaven. If you realize that every time you compromise your God-given conscience, you're sinning. Then that should motivate you to repent from living for worldly gain or advancement. And rather be motivated to preach the gospel and serve the church. Because that's what God intends you to do with your life. And those facts of life explain why. Your life is uncertain, it's brief, it's governed and conflicted. So what do you do with it? Eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the world's philosophy. But our philosophy is that we have work to do with the time we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have these facts of life to provide a basis and a guide for us.
Thank you for reminding of the right, reminding us and informing us of these simple truths that we probably would all say that we know, but based on how we live, would say otherwise. Thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for never abandoning us. We love you and we are indebted to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.